This is Trepwire Week in Review for week ending November 4th, 2022. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Henry, Head of Siri and Advisory Services. This week, the Fed raised interest rates by 75 basis points for the fourth consecutive time. And Fed Chair Powell hints that rate increases will continue at a slower pace for longer, so the terminal rate may top out higher than originally forecast. Markets reacted after digesting the comments with oil, stocks, and bonds all lower after the Fed's move. Manus investors expected the rate increase, but the commentary was more hawkish than predicted. Thanks, Martha. I think it was an interesting run-up to this week. You know, I think the headline had been, you know, the best October since 1976 for the Dow. Clearly, there was a risk-on mentality for equity investors last month. But if you scratch beneath the surface, I think there was a clear divide between stock investors and bond investors. For equity investors, as I mentioned, it was really risk-on. Even as tech earnings were dismal, layoffs and guidance were the norm for the big five or six tech stocks, even with that, stocks soared. Terms like peak inflation, Fed pivot, those emerged again in force before this week, uh, as they had in June and late July. But during that period, fixed income investors really weren't buying it. Interest rates continued to push higher. So bond investors were not buying into this notion that we had seen the worst of it yet. Credit spreads had continued to move wider. There was a really clear disconnect. That divide ended this week with fixed income investors entitled to a little bit of, I told you so. It started with earlier this week with the hotter than anticipated job openings and ADP numbers. Both of those added more pressure to the Fed to stay hawkish on interest rates. They, they really stalled the October equity rally in its tracks. And then on Wednesday, Fed Chair Powell comes out and completes the bad news hat trick for equity investors with his hawkish remarks, underscoring that the Fed is committed to squeezing out inflation. Stocks went from the worst is over to there's no end in sight, really before anybody could yell duck. Right. And now we're back to rates are going to continue to climb. The economy is going to slow. It's going to be painful for borrowers, whether it's residential, credit card, or commercial real estate borrowers. And the tone has gone from pretty positive to pretty negative in no time. Yeah, I'm not really surprised by this. I mean, I think we've had a lot of people front running the meeting and front running the announcement on the Fed. You know, it seemed like there were a lot of headlines this week talking about a pivot. And that kind of became the narrative. And then, but if you look at the raw numbers, I think the Fed's kind of put in a corner, like they don't really have any other options other than to continue to increase the rate. I mean, the private U.S. private payrolls rose by 239,000 in October. That was according to the ADP report that you mentioned, Manus, that was better than or higher than the forecasted gain of 195,000 private sector jobs. And so it's nice to have this narrative that the stock market's rallying, things are great, but when they're trying to curtail inflation, they're trying to slow the economy down, and the other economic drivers don't seem to be impacted by the last couple 75 basis point rate hikes, I think we're going to continue to see this. And 
Powell actually was quoted. Uh, so I'll, I'll read this quote to you. It's a little bit long, so bear with me here. But it, basically, the Fed said it will take into account the cumulative tightening of monetary policy, the lags with which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation, and economic and financial developments. You know, which basically, you know, maybe softens it to say, listen, we understand there's these other things that we have to consider. So maybe there's a pivot in the future. But then in the post-meeting conference, Powell said that the central bank's benchmark rate was likely to end up higher than previously expected, which they had basically been forecasted at about four and a half to four point seven five percent. So, you know, I think they're still taking a, a pretty hawkish tone and I think we'll just see how this plays out. I wouldn't be surprised if we see another 75 basis point um, increase before the end of the year. And it's just really interesting if you look at this in some total, there's definitely starting to, we're starting to see some winners and losers in the current economic condition. We've had a lot of earnings reported over the last couple of weeks. So I'll cover some of those here in a second. But this morning, uh, Sam Zell was interviewed on CNBC. And I think his sentiment was that the US is likely going to go into a recession. He said it's due to the consequence of flooding uh, the market with excess money. And then, you know, basically said going back to World War II, he's never seen a recession without a liquidity crisis and that uh, one is on the next agenda. So I think that's one thing, Manish, you've highlighted in detailing some of the differences between maybe the current economic downturn and, and 2008 is that we still have a fairly liquid market. Deals are still being done. There's still activity. Sam Zell would, would maybe say that we're encroaching or approaching on uh, a liquidity uh, slowdown or crisis. And I think if that happens, the recession is imminent. Let me get to a couple of these earnings. This isn't really an earnings, but Amazon, uh, they reported it last week. We talked about that. But they basically decided that they're going to halt corporate hiring um, based on uncertainty and global economic conditions. And then on a couple of the uh, CRE firm, Zillow Group, uh, their stock was up 4.1% on Wednesday after the company reported earnings that beat consensus expectations, even though they're forecasting lower revenues in the fourth quarter. Interesting nugget there, and we can maybe opine on this, Martha Aranis. You know, Zillow was the first one to kind of pull out of their online buyer, and everyone was really giving them a hard time because their algorithm had lost some money. And they basically threw in the towel and said, we're out of this. But if you look at back at that now, that may have been the best decision they made because the market has really gone down since then and single family residential specifically has been killed. Simon Property Group had better than expected Q3 earnings. Their uh, funds from operation were $1.1 billion, about $3 a share, which is slightly down. Uh, when compared to last year, Q3 numbers, uh, $1.18 billion. Some interesting takeaways here on the CRE side. Occupancy at their malls and premium outlets as of uh, September 30 was about 94.5%, which was slightly higher than the 93.9% that they were at in June. And then the average base minimum rent increased for the fourth quarter in a row and was about $54.80 a square foot, which is about 1.7% increased year over year. And then just some other takeaways, they signed 900 new leases, more than 3 million square feet in the quarter and have signed over 3,100 leases for more than 10 million square feet through the first nine months of the year. And they say they have a significant number of additional leases in the pipeline. And they reported another record in third quarter of $749 per square foot uh, for mall and uh, outlets, which was an increase of 14% year over year. So I know that's a lot of uh, nuggets there, Manis, but you know, even though the Fed stuff 
sent the markets kind of a little bit of an uproar this week, there seems to be some, you know, potential positive signs from Simon and a few others in the marketplace that either came in at consensus or beat beat estimates. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to our podcast last week, I was taking the contrarian view. I thought that the Fed might surprise to the downside with a 50 basis point hike. I put a lot of stock in the fact that residential mortgage rates were above seven, that property values were falling very quickly, that the construction market was really slowing fast, and car prices were starting to come down. And I thought that might lead to this notion that the Fed might just say, you know, let's continue to hike, but let's hike at a little bit more measured pace, right? I'm not sure what the benefit is of, let's say, four more 75 basis point hikes to get to 300 more basis points or six more 50 basis point hikes to get you to the same number. I mean, I'm a believer that the market doesn't have to be jolted to get there. I think if you have a steady uptick, you have a better sense of, uh, are you overshooting? Uh, But clearly that was not the case. The Fed wanted to uh, deliver another message. I do agree with Sam Zell's remarks that you underscored, Lonnie, which are that every time you go into one of these situations, a hard landing, there is a leak sprung somewhere. And the leak springs from a different part of the boat every time. And one of the biggest surprises thus far is that we haven't sprung a big leak yet. There hasn't been a bank on the ropes or a hedge fund, or a major major financial center or pension fund that is on the wrong side of a bet. We've mentioned it before, Orange County, Lorem Term Capital, Lehman Brothers, and others. We've seen this over and over again. I think that's my biggest surprise thus far, that nobody has has yet come out and said, we're, we're insolvent, right? I think that day is coming, but who knows when and who knows from where. So we just released our CMBS delinquency report, and the rate moved up a bit. So what's behind the numbers? Well, it is a rare event that the rate goes up. As our report noted, it's only the third time in the last 28 months that we've seen an uptick. The uptick was pretty modest, four basis points higher than it was in September, still under 3%. Uh, We were very cautious to inform our clients that never does one month make a trend. I think the one time that that wasn't true was at the beginning of COVID where everything went delinquent all at once. That would be the exception. You know, I I don't think four basis points higher is the sky is falling. It may be, though, the tipping point where future months may show modest increases as liquidity gets tighter and the cost of refinancing becomes higher. Um, On an individual property type basis, industrial was unchanged. Delinquencies there remain under 50 basis points, just a phenomenal performer. Lodging, another sizable drop this month. Delinquencies there now under 5%. Listeners will recall that was in the mid-20s in the early days of COVID. Multifamily dropped. It remains under 1%. Offices ticked up about 17 basis points, still remains under 2%. And retail uh, inched up five basis points. It's at 6.66%. Uh, It's the worst performer of the major property types, and that's a function largely of those legacy mall loans that were originated in 2012 to 2014. So that's the delinquency number right there. Uh, Before we move on to the next topic, I just wanted to revisit one more thing. For those that were curious about where interest rates moved since last week, because we did talk about that Fed move 
The 10-year was up from our last podcast uh, a week ago, Thursday, the 27th. Uh, the 10-year is up now about 18 basis points week over week. More alarming, the two-year is up 41 basis points over the last five trading sessions. So uh, a big jump and that two-year now uh, at a new multi-year high, multi-year being uh, I think more than 15 years and is now inching closer to 5%. So for those that didn't get their interest rate caps in place a month ago, what was pretty painful a month ago is now going to become uh, even more painful now. Yeah, I had sent uh, Manishu and Martha a screenshot of some stuff on Twitter this week where you know LP investors were getting feedback from the the GP and their deals where their their monthly escrows had gone from two thousand a month to twenty two thousand a month, and it was due to some floating rate environments and other things. And so, you know, we've talked about that you know over the last couple of weeks. We're starting to see that come out in the marketplace through some of the stuff that's uh, being made available by people that have money invested in the market in real estate. So my my thoughts on the uh, delinquency report are pretty straightforward. I think for lodging, you know, you said that was the biggest mover in a positive way down to 4.89%. At this point, you know, hotels that are still viable, in my opinion, are doing really, really well. I, I'd like to do an analysis on that and see how many of those properties probably were struggling long before the pandemic, because I think that the data suggests if it's a viable hotel, it's probably back to pre-COVID levels at this point. You know, office jumping up 17 basis points, that's the highest it's been in the last, you know, 12 plus months. Still relatively low at 1.75, but maybe we're starting to see some of the cracks uh, there come to fruition. And I think just generally, you know, the clouds of distress have been like hanging over us for the last couple of months. Like, as those assets, you know, start feeling the effects of that distress, the delinquency number should come up. And so while we like seeing that number down and we've we've enjoyed, if you look at the year over year change, the overall delinquency rates down 161 basis points year over year. So very strong indication there. But I wouldn't be shocked, you know, for our listeners, if over the next six months, we start seeing a steady increase in some of these asset types as the refinancing and maturities and other things start happening on some of those properties that maybe are, are having a little bit of struggle on the cash flow side. So more to come on that. Really good news on the whole, though, at the onset of COVID, this was at 10.32% overall, down to 2.96. I think it's a, it's a pretty good pretty good green shoot for the delinquency uh, side. All right. Before we move on, Lonnie, I got I to gotta throw this out there. As you throw out Twitter a fair amount on the podcast, the eight buck thing, is that has that just like outraged you? Are you going to like boycott now? Are you going to make a stand? What's what's your thought now with the eight bucks for a month for the for the blue dot? Hey man, tell me where I put my credit card number in. I'm getting me a blue check mark. I'm on the uh, I'm on the blue check mark for all, so that people can be uh, actually verified with like reasonable methodology. I think before it was a black box because you had a lot of people that probably should be verified based on the number of followers and who they actually are in real life not able to get verified and you have others that are verified through some secret whatever and so obviously I like Twitter I'm on there a lot and I love the free content but I think I'm team musk on this side like I think it's a it's a hugely mismanaged organization from a revenue perspective and I think this will actually bring some certainty to to what you know who's real who's not real who should you be listening to and who shouldn't you be listening to and uh so yeah, if I can sign up for eight bucks, I'm uh, I'm signing up for the eight buck blue check mark. Lonnie taking the uh, the long term view of of Twitter, I like that. 
I, I was expecting outrage, no outrage. Yeah, given his I, Texas background, I thought he'd be, you know, no money for Musk. No, I no, he's uh, listen, he's he's brought a lot of economic benefit to the state. He moved Tesla here, built a huge facility outside Austin. He's got uh, SpaceX down in uh, South Texas. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Twitter moves its headquarters to Texas as well. And so, um, you know, I think uh, I think he's done a lot of really great things for Texas. I do think, uh, from a marketing perspective, you'll get you'll get you know some joy out of this, Martha. They floated out twenty dollars a month. You that know. dog did not hunt. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so that that didn't work. I, yeah, they've, they've had a lot of news obviously lately, sounding like they're gonna they're gonna cut some of their engineering staff. So I think some folks are volunteering to uh, to work extra hours just to to stay on the good side. All right, let's talk about CMBS spreads. Yeah, last week I talked about this and and I gave people a sense of where the market was up and down the credit curve. And I do think looking back that I probably undersold just how much widening we've seen. I, I think last week I called the market for the AAA 10-year CMBS bond at maybe 160 uh, over the SOFR curve, double A's, maybe 250, single A's, maybe 350 and 500 over for triple B. Uh, I, I think we're considerably wider than that. Uh, I didn't take into consideration a deal that priced the middle of last week. So I should probably update these numbers. I think that spreads on the triple A are pushing 200 basis points at this point. The most recent deal to price had the long triple A spread at 195 over the SOFR curve. The AA minus was almost 300 basis points over the curve. Uh, the single A minus 400 over the curve. And the triple B minus over 600 basis points over the curve at this point. So for triple B minus now, you're getting a 10% yield on this for something that not long ago, you were probably getting a 4% yield on, 4 or 5%, something like that. So the cost of borrowing uh, out of the CMBS market has really gone up substantially. And let me put this in perspective month over month. So AAA is probably 45 basis points wider. AA's, let's call it 60 wider. Single A's, 100 wider. And triple B minus, depending on issue to issue, anywhere between 80 and 120 basis points wider than where we were a month ago. So between the rising interest rates and widening spreads, if we thought we had concerns about offices being able to refinance six weeks ago, those concerns have gotten even bigger in the last six weeks. And what does that mean? It means for people that are cash in, right? They have to write a check to refinance their loan. That check got bigger since the middle of September by a substantial amount. Yeah, it's really interesting on that, Anis. I was reading some stuff this week where they were talking about, you know, how markets cycle in and out. And a lot of times like bankruptcy or handing the keys back or whatever is really not a direct result of mismanagement at the property level. It's sometimes just a result of bad timing in the market in the sense that you have a five-year loan that the property cash flowed for all five years, but due to some macro factors that you can't control like interest rates, you know, reducing the value of your asset when it comes time for that balloon note to come due and you don't have the funds puts you in a really precarious spot. So 
you know, we've talked about that. We actually have a little bit more data that I'm going to talk about here in a minute that goes into that. But it is interesting, you know, we're seeing this stuff in real time. But if we look back on this in a couple of years, I think it's going to be really interesting just to see how many people were actually able to weather the storm and put that cash into it to save the property and how many of them walked away to this point. We've had a lot of discussion around the possibility of those things happening, but we haven't seen a lot of properties actually physically going back to the lender. Yeah, I mean, timing is a big part of it. And what you have now are several variables. You have the higher interest rate, which is one, which is also paired potentially with a slowing economy as the Fed tries to get this uh, inflation under control. But you're also, if you're in office space, you're pairing that with potentially epically low demand compared to where we were five years ago. And for somebody who has to either refinance right now, or even worse, refinance and find a new tenant before they refinance, that is a recipe for a lot of sleepless nights. And just as I was rooting for the hotel guys two years ago, and the mall guys for the last five years, you know, I'm rooting for the office guys too, right? You go into this in good faith, hoping to manage your building well, uh, maintain it, provide your tenants with uh, safe and clean space. And sometimes timing and headwinds come at you all at once. And, uh, and hopefully these guys can muddle through. So we've been digging through the data the last several weeks, and we have another series of data points that we were going to cover this week, floating rate loans. Yeah. So uh, this has been a new segment for us about the last three or four weeks, and I think it's been pretty well received. And I want to just say that, you know, in this exercise, we're not trying to put shock and all numbers out there. We're really just trying to provide some context to maybe some of the headlines and some of the stuff that has been floated around in the marketplace, some of the chatter. And so this week, you know, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about floating rate loans. And so we've had you know, large amount of discussion on our side around what Manish just described, where you have a property that maybe is coming up for refinance and they're having to refinance into a much higher interest rate environment. And in another example, you could have a property that has a base rate plus, you know, some basis point over SOFR, LIBOR, et cetera. And those are floating and they reset and they reset on some sort of a cadence. And in those examples, you don't necessarily get the benefit of waiting until that balloon comes due, you feel the impacts of those those floats in real time. And so I wanted to go through and see, well, just what is the exposure in our system and our data set related to the floating rate loans um, that we're tracking? So here's a few high-level numbers, and we'll break them down a little bit by sector and by geography. But there's uh, currently about $300 billion worth of um, floating rate loans uh, that TREP is tracking right now. What's really interesting about that, though, is there's almost zero delinquency on any of those deals right now. So almost in every instance, the property is still performing and making the mortgage payment. However, there's increased risk that those could flip because of the floating rate nature of the, the financing structure. Of the $300 billion, about $189 billion of those have extension options. So this is something Manis has pointed out a couple of times that something may have a maturity technically in say 2023, but they may have one, two or three 12 month extension options that for a small fee and if they're meeting the loan covenants, they can um, they can you know add on additional 12 months to the term, et cetera. There's about 82 billion that have balloon payments. And then we'll break them down here by property sector. Of the 300 billion, there's about 164 of that that's concentrated in multifamily. 
Uh, these are floating rate, 40 billion in industrial, 30 billion in office, and about 28 billion in lodging. None of those seem, you know, multifamily, that number's a lot larger than the rest, but the number of properties uh, in multifamily seed the others. Uh, so none of those just jump off the page. What is interesting, though, is the maturities. If you look at upcoming maturities in 2023, there's about $80 billion worth of uh, floating rate maturity. There's about $77 billion in 2024. Those numbers are really large on a relative basis. If you look at 2025, the number drops to $12 billion. So we're kind of right at that crux of potential disruption over the next two years. You got about $157 billion worth of floating rate loans that are maturing. And if some of those start to have trouble and can't extend, or if some of them don't have extension options, there could be some real disruption in the market here in the next, you know, call it 24 months. And then if we look at them by largest MSAs or MSAs that have largest exposure, it's, you know, the ones you would imagine is New York, New York, Jersey City, Dallas, Fort Worth, Los Angeles, Atlanta, and Miami. So some pretty interesting stuff to look at. We'll obviously keep our eye on this as the market continues to evolve. Um, but that should provide maybe some general context in terms of what the potential impact of the floating rate environment is, um, at least across the properties that we track in the data. Yeah, two thoughts on, on the floating rate side. One is the more transitional a property is, meaning the lower below a debt service coverage ratio of one it's starting with, right? If you're really in lease up phase for some of these things, normally you have reserves in place that will cover debt service for the early months of this, and that can keep a loan current. It's one of the trickier things to get your arms around when you're looking at these things, if you're trading these bonds as to you know, how much reserve is left, how well are the, the borrowers, the landlords, the property owners executing on their plan. And, and that is something that there was a lot of these loans done in 2006 and 2007, conversion of affordable housing, rent control, rent stabilized into market leases, Stytown in New York, the Riverton in New York, similar types of stories where the reserves were not big enough to um, carry the owner of the property through the transition period. And so when those reserves blew up or blew out, ended, uh, the loan became delinquent. Those were huge loans too, in fact. The Stytown loan was $3 billion for the senior loan. And I think over $4 billion when you include the MES debt. Um, so that makes these types of things kind of tricky to understand where they are in the cycle. But one thing we've seen from a trading perspective in the last, let's say, 60 days is people that trade these loans or trade these bonds backed by these loans have all pivoted to the assumption that every one of these loans will extend to its fully extended maturity date. So traders, money managers, et cetera, those people six weeks ago, two months ago, they would have said, we're gonna assume that every one of these loans pays off before it ex ex extends for the first time. Now, because traders model or, or run cash flows to the worst case scenario, they now assume that these below market spread loans will extend to as long as they possibly can. So a two-year bond has now become a five-year bond. And we can get more into this. If people want to kind of scratch beneath the surface, we could talk about that a little bit more. Sometimes I throw out very opaque 
ideas and, and I don't get into all the, the weeds, but I'm happy to, if people want to ping me and, and go through this in greater detail. So let's get through a couple of property sectors. We may only have time for a couple, but uh, let's start with multifamily. We had a big sale in Philly. Yeah, we'll talk about two elements of this. Let's start with the crabgrass before the Philly. So I want to put this in context. The crabgrass comes from Susanna Cavanaugh of The Real Deal. And her headline this week was that multifamily sales are at a virtual standstill, quote unquote, virtual standstill, a poll of... 268 multifamily executives done by the National Multifamily Housing Council indicated that 90% reported falling sales over the last three months. Uh, they cited falling rent growth and higher debt costs and expenses for this. So that's the background, right? That's the headline, which was negative. And yet we saw two really nice sales this week, one in the student housing segment and one in multifamily. The one in multifamily, this was the Wall Street Journal reported on this, as did our sister company, Commercial Real Estate Direct. Presidential City, an apartment complex in Philly, sold for almost $360 million. The sale is said to be the highest price ever in that city, the city of brotherly love. The complex was acquired by KKR. It represents a cap rate of 4.59% to 2021 NOI. We know that a cap rate to a trailing NOI is not the be-all and end-all. It's only a benchmark, but it should give people a sense of uh, where this traded. It represented 360000 per unit. The property was valued at $380 million in 2019. So the sales price represents a discount of about 6% to that number. I call this a big green shoot, right? Philly, a lot of headlines with crime, a lot of headlines with demand slowing nationwide for multifamily. To see a sale of this size, certainly a green shoot. It's definitely a green shoot. I know last week, Lonnie talked about some hairline fractures in the multifamily market and a number of the stories, and you you referenced them anecdotally that are coming through are things about more evictions, rents dropping or incomes dropping for these operators of these multifamily spaces. It's definitely definitely good news in addition to the Phillies being in the World Series. Yeah, good news in some precincts, perhaps. You know, I would say a 459 cap rate, of course, this deal was probably done weeks ago, so before maybe the last two Fed moves, but a 459 cap rate in a market that's said to be leveling off and where the two-year treasury is now at 471, I think that seems that seems like a green shoot to me. Lonnie, what do you think? Yeah, I think there's... There's some stuff that we we talk about and we read about that, you know, kind of is a large umbrella that, that sweeps everything up underneath there. And if you look at the marketplace, I know that you talked about the one uh, crabgrass about virtual standstill multifamily sales. I think for the institutional grade assets and the large institutional plays, there's still a market for that. Those Those folks have to place capital, deals have to get done. So, you know, I saw several articles this week where, for the institutional players, they haven't seen the same type of slowdown on the transaction side, or at least pricing reductions that you would expect that you maybe are seeing in the smaller, you know, more individually syndicated type of deal structure um, acquisitions. So, yeah, I think this is a green shoot for sure. It's a sets a record for Philly, four and a half cap rate in today's environment. I mean, I think all that's positive if you're the seller. It'll be interesting. You know, I think 
we all are dealing with the recency bias of what kind of where we're at in the market. I think what we're seeing on some of these institutional buyers is they're willing to take some of that initial risk because they think they're buying in markets that over the long term are going to play out. So some of the floating rate stuff we just talked about, some of the other things we've covered over the last couple of weeks around value add repositioning, et cetera, those are very heavily concentrated with individual business plans being executed, et cetera. There's probably a case to be made that for some of these other folks, the mantra of buying in really solid locations, high quality assets, even if you're overpaying based on today's dollars, um, you might still be making a good risk adjusted bet over the longer term in those instances. So maybe this is a, a representative of that. I did want to comment on the presidential city apartments, by the way, because it is technically in the city, but it's bordering on City Line Avenue, City Avenue, which is right up against a suburb where I grew up, Ballackinwood. So I wonder if that has any bearing on the the value of the property, the attractiveness of the property, the draw, that sort of thing. Can you get a good cheesesteak at the presidential? That's the that's the big thing. Can you get a uh, pattern Geno's within a 15-minute drive? You could probably ride your bike to a cheesesteak place there. Okay. A good one? A good one. Yeah. All there's right. definitely no bad cheesesteaks in most of the uh, the Philly uh, shop. They don't even call them sub shops. They're hoagies or hot sandwiches. I made the mistake of getting one of each, right? A Pat and Geno's, right? Those are the two big places in in Philly. And then thinking it was a good idea to run up the Rocky steps afterwards. Ooh. It was just a bad, bad idea. Ooh. You know, can't, uh, don't try that at home. Did you get it um, with whiz? Without. I know Martha mentioned a couple of the other stories that we had kind of alluded to last week on the pod. And there were a couple of headlines that I wanted to get to that we weren't able to. So I'm going to talk a little bit about them now. Dallas Morning News had an article last week that talked about the Dallas County evictions in the month of September reached the third highest one month filing total in the last five years. So that was something that, you know, has been fairly underreported. I know that there was a lot of discussion with the eviction moratorium and everything else nationwide that there was going to be a wave of evictions when those were removed and we didn't really see the wave and ever came. But it seems like, you know, anecdotally, at least in some of these major markets, we are starting to see an uptick in some of the eviction filing, which may be a byproduct of just some of the downward pressure uh, for some people with their jobs and local economy, inflation, pricing them out in terms of being able to pay for groceries, gas and rent, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a couple of quotes in here. Some attorneys that work with an eviction advocacy center said they expect things to get much, much worse. Take that for what it is. And then we had an article in CRE Direct, um, which is our sister company, but this was actually in our quarterly data review, which is a quarterly magazine that we put out. So if you haven't gotten that, you should email us at podcast.trep.com so that we can send you a copy of the uh, quarterly data review. Uh, you can also download that on our website or through our LinkedIn. But there was an article in there where we looked at net cash flow growth or net cash flow change from 2020 to 2021. And for apartment properties that are backed by CMBS loans, there was about a 1.76% overall increase in net cash flow between 2021 when compared to 2020. So it was minimized by cash flow um, declines in some states with large urban areas. So California, New York, Massachusetts, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, where there was actually a drop in cash flow. So in that article, you can see a chart that actually goes through and highlights some of the major uh, market movers there. But something just to look at 
you're not seeing huge increases in net cash flow um, over the last couple of years in the multifamily sector backed by uh, CMBS loans. One more multifamily story. This is in the student housing segment. Go through this quickly. This is from KGUN. They're on your side, by the way, uh, television station uh, out in Arizona. Vesper Holdings has acquired Soli Luna for $203 million. That is a 340-unit, 973-bed property near the University of Arizona. Uh, the seller was Nelson Partners Student Housing. This is a real green shoot. Property was valued at $191 million in 2019, uh, sold for over $203 million, so about a 6% uh, uptick in valuation, which is good news to begin with. But even better news was that this was one of the last loans originated before COVID. And it was a very tricky loan to securitize because the market really shut down not very long after this loan was made. And at the time, this thing was sitting on people's warehouses. Some of it was securitized at, on the last train getting out of Dodge before the securitization market shut down. And some of it was securitized after the thaw ended. But if you were sitting on this loan in February or March of 2020, um, you were probably thinking this is really terrible timing. You probably thought this was a loan waiting to see a sizable loss on. And yet, two years later, here we are. 6% uh, appreciation on the value of the property and the loan, uh, assuming it gets paid off and is not assumed, comes out whole. So uh, really nice story there. Let's dig into a hotel story and then we'll quickly pivot to office because we've got a lot of stories there. Yeah, for a week that had a lot of bad news in the equity markets, on the interest rate front, on the Fed front and in data, a lot of activity this week. You know, last week, I think we were kind of bone dry on transactions. We didn't have a lot to report on. Uh, this week, between that multifamily and student housing and a lot of other things, um, some pretty big deals getting done. Uh, two quick ones on the hotel side. This comes from Paul O'Donnell of the Dallas Morning News. Uh, Bramer Hotels said it will acquire the Four Seasons Resort Scottsdale at Troon North. Uh, they will pay almost $270 million for the asset the sale is expected to close at the end of this year. Um, the price equates to almost $1.3 million per key. Uh, that's a big number. Uh, the other one we saw in Nashville, this is reported by William Williams of the Nashville Post. He reports that the hotel component of the Four Seasons in Nashville, that is uh, half condo, half hotel. The hotel component sold for $165 million. Uh, just over $700,000 per key. That's a lot of bachelorette parties to have to fill that hotel with, but good news, right? That's uh, two real green shoots in the hotel space. All right, let's move to office. Yeah, so CBRE released its Tech 30 report, which explores the tech industry's impact on office space and ranks the 30 leading tech markets in the U.S. U.S. leasing activity uh, by the tech industry was 35% below pre-pandemic levels. Subly space across uh, the tech 30 is elevated at about 4% of available space. We had a really nice write-up last week on subly space with some really cool infographics where we actually mapped out. So you could check that out in addition to the CBRE tech 30 and see if there's some overlap there. They determined that rents in 23 markets were higher in Q2 of 22 than they were two years ago. And only six of the 30 markets 
and eight submarkets recorded positive net absorption over the past two years. So uh, takeaways here, markets that have the best combination of future tech demand drivers and office market fundamentals, drum roll please, we have Boston, Silicon Valley, Raleigh-Durham, and San Diego. So, uh, you know, the one surprising thing there is just that Silicon Valley still is ranked high, given the fact that we've seen so many negative stories coming from the, you know, pure office sector. But I guess when you look at it based on their rating of tech demand drivers and the office market, they still uh, they still rank high. Boston is a no-brainer. Raleigh-Durham, you know, I think that market has really come on strong over the last couple of years as kind of an innovation and tech hub. And then San Diego finally starting to... Um, you know, maybe compete with some of the other California cities in terms of tech talent and other things. So some interesting takeaways from that. Um, and I think, again, if you look at the sublease space, there's probably some overlap between what we put together last week and what you see in the CBRE report. So Manus, are you feeling like you want to start with green or crab today? Uh, let's start with the green and then we'll have a couple of crabs at the end. First green shoot, George Avalos of the Mercury News. Uh, this comes from Sunning Vale, California, phase one of the Catalyst complex, that's a big office complex in Sunnyvale, has been sold for $222 million. Property is leased to LinkedIn. Square footage totals about 195K, and it's sold for over 1100 bucks a square foot. So even though a lot of nervousness about tech tenants these days, it didn't dissuade somebody from coming in and paying a real premium price for that office in Sunnyvale. Elsewhere, Green Shoot, Commercial Observer's Greg Cornfield, perhaps the worst name office I've ever heard of, the Trailer Park Office at 6922 Hollywood <laughs> Boulevard in Los Angeles uh, has been sold. REIT, Hudson Pacific Properties is the seller, Harbor Associates the buyer, sales price $96 million. The property was valued at $66 million in 2004. So 50% price appreciation over the last 20 years. Uh, property totals 200,000 square feet. Sales price equates to about 500 bucks a square foot, a little bit less than that. Uh, it used to be the home of that iconic magazine, TV Guide, if you guys oh, remember wow. that. wow. That is a throwback. You I don't know, even I was, think Kaylee knows what you're talking about. TV Guide, all it was was basically a magazine that told you that was was on TV each programming week. programming that's it yeah and it was the biggest selling magazine in the United States for decades which is kind of funny because we only had like three channels yeah it was really quite remarkable and and it went off the air at you know 12:30 when they played the national anthem and you get the color pattern but i was so illiterate in high school i my my reading and my vocabulary was so weak i think i did a a report on reading a, a tv guide like other people were reading Catcher in the Rye and other people were reading The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> I read the TV guide and I did a report on it. Like that's how poor my my writing and language skills were in ninth grade. Uh, another green shoot. This is in Atlanta. Graphic Packaging International. Uh, interestingly, my daughter used to work for them. Uh, they've renewed and expanded at 1500 River Edge Summit. Um, they're growing their footprint by 130,000 square feet taking the entirety of a building that's in the Cumberland Galleria um, area that's owned by Opal Holdings. Um, why did this one get my attention? Um, well, it used to be leased to Truist, this additional space, and Lincoln National 
both of those firms moved on and graphic packaging will be moving into that space. So not all lease terminations and givebacks lead to bad news. On the crabgrass side, uh, in Cleveland, uh, American Greeting Corp is putting half their space out for sublet, 250,000 square feet uh, in the Cleveland submarket. Uh, that comes from Stan Bullard of Cranes. Cleveland, uh, that particular asset uh, backs a big CMBS loan, although American Greetings is locked in on that uh, lease until 2031. Uh, in New York, Lois Weiss says that Japanese ad firm Dentsu has put 450,000 square feet out for sublet uh, across two different properties, one in Hudson Yards and one in Midtown. Um, and then Drew Hutchinson of the Nash, uh, Nashville Biz Journal, Bridgestone, putting out 160,000 square feet, about a third of its space uh, out for sublease in its downtown office market. If I'll throw in one more crabgrass here, Manus, this was uh, Meta backing out of their plan to occupy about 589,000 square foot of space in Austin. So we actually talked about this a few months ago where they had taken down the entire building at six in Guadalupe in Austin. They were going to take uh, the entire space. It was a spec build and they've decided to uh, to not take that space. So they're, you know, as their parent company or as the company Meta decides to shrink its overall footprint, they're backing out of the plan to, to fill the space and they're going to sublease the space. So again, that's been a market that's been really starved for office space. Austin has really outperformed. So it'll be very interesting to see how quickly that 589,000 square foot new new building can be absorbed in the marketplace. So this had been rumored for the last couple of weeks and was just confirmed uh, in a couple of publications, uh, one being the real deal um, this week. All right, we have a couple programming notes. TREP is hosting a live webinar highlighting some of the challenges for CRE risk model development. That's going to be November 8th on Tuesday with a couple of our experts in the lending and banking space and modeling. So if you're interested in that, send us an email at podcast at trip.com. We'll send you all the details so you can join that. That's a free webinar that's available to anybody. And an innovation challenge that our academic team has launched. We've got the round one deadline, November 11th, which happens to be Veterans Day. We're partnering with NYU Stern for new ideas coming from undergrad, grad, postdoctoral students or faculty. And the first gate is really only a one-page summary of your idea. So relatively easy submission. And if you, you win, actually you get a trip to New York to do a presentation and up to $15,000 to invest in funding that idea, whatever it might be. Shout outs. Brian G is an avid listener, and I think someone requested a t-shirt for him. So we'll have to make a note of that. Emily D is a fan of the pod. She says she's been listening since the beginning. So she's probably listened to a hundred plus episodes. Kareem J sent us a shout out from his friend also named Kareem J, which is kind of interesting and very suspicious. Colin M, as always, I love the podcast and uh, had a question for us that we're going to be following up with. Joyce C asked for more info on cap rates for CRE CLOs. Black Eagle Deborah commented on our Southwest Air conversation. She loves the airline Manus and says you can pay 15 bucks to upgrade and pick your seat. Yes, I had to apologize to Deborah. She's a big fan of the airline. And I had to admit that I hadn't been on a Southwestern flight in about 10 years. So, you know, I probably did them a little bit uh, dirty last week. Uh, I should try them again and see if it's it's really the 
experience that Deborah has has said it is. And Rock S is interested in our maturities data. Jeff F responded to people tweeting about Local Law 97, which is a regulation here in New York around carbon emissions. And he thought it was interesting that he had just heard us talk about on the podcast when it was a discussion with people on Twitter. And Real Estate Trent, who's AKA Strip Mall Guy, his fans like the fact that we mentioned him a couple of times. So Institutional Capital said he was listening to Trepwire and was surprised that we mentioned him. And so was Dave S on Twitter. And, you know, guys, I know we've been talking about the World Series the last couple of times because obviously it's front and center, but you've probably noticed that in the cornhole circles, there's a huge scandal as a result of the championship back in August where I guess the top ranked teams were accused of using illegal beanbags. You know, I, I just can't get over this story. You know, first it was fishing guys dropping weights into their fish to win fishing competitions. And now the cornhole guys, you know, you know, manipulating their bags to, I don't know, make them slide better or something. I, I don't Smaller, really know. But... Lighter, easier to, yeah, easier to win. Well, let me tell you something right here, right now. And I promise you, this is the God honest truth. You know, Lonnie, what you see is what you get. No filler, no additives, no meat byproducts, no artificial sweetener, just pure, unadulterated, unpasteurized CRE. There is wow. nothing to Lonnie that's not natural. Commercial wow. real estate every day, 24-7. And that's the way it'll stay. Nice. Very nice. And if all else fails, you could be a referee for the uh, American Cornhole Federation. I'm just nervous to Google cornhole on the company uh, computer. <laughs> well, with that, we're definitely going to have to close. Thanks to our producer, Haley Keene. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or a comment, send it to podcastoftrep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.